for September 30th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 587, Notional Loudness. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. It's like we're a, a kind of band uh, that uh, keeps reuniting, reforming in, in, uh, new, with new drummers every single time. And uh, no matter what, we, uh, this is Overthinking It. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by uh, my friends on, uh, on bass, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey Matt, he wrote that. He wrote that. <laughs> and on lead guitar, Mr. Markley. It's good to be here, Matt. Uh, it's very good. Uh, I don't know, guys, if you know what this is. I didn't myself until Mark pointed it out to me. I used to be the biggest cheerleader for the kind of things like this, but I, I guess in my old age I've become forgetful, and they've they've all fallen away. Uh, today is the 11th anniversary uh, of the first weekly overthinking it. So, um, you know... And, and, hey, what? Yeah, the, the day... I think the day that we released it. Um, so if you're listening to this on Monday, September 30th, 2019, the day that we release it, then yesterday was the 11th anniversary of the first weekly overthinking it, which I think is episode 13. And we... Um, I, I had, I, you see, I used to have multiple methods of calculating this anniversary. There was the, uh, the date method by which we actually line up. It just so happens that we are recording on the very date. Um, and then also the, uh, the mathematical method, which was, I would take 13, the episode when we started going weekly and add to it, uh, you know, 52 times, however many years that was actually two episodes ago, uh, 585. And here we are are in 587 uh the calendar anniversary because of the extra you know the extra couple days in every um in every year beyond beyond just 52 we we get to this and that that like that that astonishes me it means that there has been a new overthinking it podcast every single monday for 11 years <laughs> Man, that, that if if you want to undertake a project like this in your life, don't. <laughs> My advice to you: <laughs> it will not. Uh, do not live in public for five hundred and eighty-seven hours of uh, downloadable audio content, because you know you you will you will discover things about yourself, not necessarily the things you you set out to uh, you set out to discover. You will look back uh, at yourself and, and you know what? Sometimes you'll be very proud. Sometimes you'll cringe a little when you look back, uh, at the person you used to be. So because this podcast goes to 11, we decided to look back, uh, at something that used to be something that also, uh, goes to 11, a piece of, uh, a piece of popular culture, a film that, that was released round about the time that the three of us were born. And that is 1984's film Spinal Tap. Uh, because... No, Matt, Matt, no, the name of the movie is This is Spinal Tap. Oh, sorry. The, yes, the, uh, the documentary, or if you will, 
rockumentary, though we like to call it a mockumentary. Uh, by the way, that that like uh, that Rob Reiner that. Um, opening is so good i hadn't i hadn't seen it in a long time and like him like folding his arms and then just letting them drop awkwardly (laughs) just the really bad blocking that he does walking through the the thing the four ladders set up in like this geometric progression it's really really good anyway so because we go up to 11 because spinal tap goes up to 11 because spinal tap is about as old as we are uh and because there is uh there is kind of an aspect of kind of looking Looking back in this, we're going to talk about Spinal Tap uh, on this show. Mark, this was your idea. How did you feel watching Spinal Tap in uh, 2019? Uh, I'd feel much worse about it if I weren't under such heavy sedation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love this movie. Um, I saw it at a very impressionable age, like in college, you know, uh, 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 along with a bunch of other uh, kind of defining things that define my taste, like, uh, I don't know, the big Lebowski, just kind of throw that out there. Um, And so it's really stuck with me. Uh, since then, not just for that reason, uh, but perhaps more importantly, because I play the electric guitar because I've been in several rock bands and because I really, really do love this type of music that is skewered. Um, well, is it skewered? That's a question we'll get to later on. That that's you know that is the subject of this movie, heavy metal, hard rock. Um, so I, I I have a lot of feels for it. Right? I it just it, it checks off a lot of a lot of boxes for me. It forms a lot of basis for for me for thinking about um, this type of music. And how serious you take it, or or not to take it, um, and I want to talk to you guys about it, right? In particular, because like we've had it around for so long, and because its ideas and its tropes and its jokes have become uh, tr- truly embedded in the pop culture, right? You know, this idea of turning it up to eleven. Um, you know, I I would wager to say that like half the people who hear it on a daily basis have never seen this movie, and yet they know exactly. What it's referring to. We might try to unpack the joke a little bit more later on, um, but let's start off the discussion with this idea of like we're watching in 2019. Um, you know, several decades after guitar-driven rock music was uh, the predominant uh, force in in popular music. I'd say arguably, right? That ended in the 70s. Um, and what, like, you know, the, the music consumers have gotten more sophisticated. Producers of music have gotten more sophisticated. That's not to say that uh, dimwits don't don't still are not are not making music. Um, but it part of me wonders if this mus- if this movie um, is a relic of a an age a bygone age. Or if it still has a lot to say about all the things that we've been talking about um, to this point, music, celebrity, culture, so on and so forth. So question to you guys, is it a relic or is it still relevant? Oh, yes. man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go first? Go on. Unpack that. Well, you know, Spinal Tap, my woke brothers, is a movie about how the patriarchy needs to be restored. And when you let your girlfriend manage your band, everything falls apart. <laughs> It's not not about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And how yeah. the proper sphere for creative endeavor is an all male uh all male environment where women are sort of disposable eye candy or they're like Fran Drescher for, you know, to 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 be sort of to be mo- no. I mean, I'm I'm it is it is a relic, right? Like I don't think you could do 
I don't think you could do it in quite that the same way now and sort of take the the institutional sexism of that um, kind of milieu for for granted. Now I say this in the context of the uh, the film I saw in theaters this weekend because I, I, I'm an overthinker and it's the law uh, because I have to keep the theater business <laughs> single handedly afloat. Um, the film I saw in theaters was the Linda Ronsat Hagiographic uh, hey documentary, which is mm-hmm. not. Uh, which is very good is a down the middle like autobiography style documentary of Linda Ronstadt right and um there's no one in it who who you know says a cross word about anything uh anything at all which like if you're around the the music industry in the 60s and 70s and and no one is saying a cross word uh you you weren't uh, you weren't really there Right, like um, so it's like it's like the saying, like if you remember Berkeley in 1968, you weren't you weren't actually there. So the the uh, you know it was kind of this this hagiography. I, I just want to like I you know I don't mean to damn it with faint praise. It was a really good movie, and, and uh, among its many many virtues is that you hear Linda Ronstadt sing a lot of songs uh, completely through. So. So uh, she talks all uh, throughout the thing, and it's kind of brought to light a lot about like what a difficult thing it was to be a woman in the music industry in the the sixties and seventies. And you know, this is set ten years later. It's I think set in nineteen eighty two. Um, the the film, and like I I don't think you could not. I don't think you could kind of get away with a lot of this stuff. You know, with the uh, the sort of sexism of the album cover being played for laughs, um, and uh, this kind of thing. The the on the other hand, it is a movie for our time because self delusion is eternal. You know, and that's like that. That's a little bit. I I sort of wonder if this is sort of like Anchorman. Um, what Pete used to say is like it's a it's a farce masquerading as a satire, and. Um, I don't, I don't think it is that because what's, what's being satirized is actually something that is legitimately tragic, which is, you know, sort of self-delusion, like a, the, the inability to introspect. Um, and that's all, you know, that's always funny and they are, you know, but, but I, I don't know. I think there is a, there's an, a sense in which like, are they really high status and they need to be brought low? Like the whole plot of the movie is that like, they're not playing in big arenas. They're playing in 1200 seat venues and not 12,000 seat venues. They're, you know, they're getting uh, shows canceled. You know, the, the, the tour seems like kind of a rinky dink operation. Um, and, and like, is this, you know, are, are they legitimate targets for fun? Um, the the other thing I I think Mark you sort of alluded to this earlier it's it's difficult to make fun of it when the songs are so good you know right yes they're, exactly right they're really really good guitar driven kind of you know hard rock songs or metal songs or what you know whatever generically however you want to parse it generically like uh, now they have like funny lyrics they have like Weird Al style. Uh, lyrics, big bottom drive me out of my mind. How can I leave this behind? You know? <laughs> heavy duty, so heavy duty rock and roll. Heavy duty brings out the duty in my soul. 
<laughs> duty. <laughs> right? Like, that's, they have weird outlet, but like, they're good. They're really good. I mean, I, whatever Big Bottom is, like, what, I, all, I just need to think. And like, I'm going to start, like, you know, bopping around in my, uh, as Marty DeBerge says in the, in the opening, let's boogie. You know, Um, so so yes, it's a relic. Yes, it's a movie for our time, and yes, I think it has some problems as as satire because it's it's just too good. What do you, P? Over to you. Yeah, sure. So uh, I will say to answer what you're talking about, and then maybe go in a slightly different direction. uh, I think that if you were to remake Spinal Tap which I think they're trying to do, and they're in a protracted years-long legal battle to get the rights back from the company that bought the company that bought the company. Whoever, you know, the, the matryoshka of Spinal Tap ownership is being peeled back layer by layer in the hopes of doing some sort of, uh, I think, remake or, re- or reboot or something. Uh, there are scenes in Spinal Tap that I think feel very current. One of them is the discussion of... S&M sexuality and album covers, which I don't think feels dated or even particularly offensive, right? Because there's a bunch of dudes, right, arguing about in front of like in front of a couple of women generally about what would offend women about the situation and and sort of trying to understand that it matters whether you're the one being humiliated or whether you're humiliating somebody oh, else. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it's like so so Very if good. you haven't seen Spinal Tap, right, the, the main driving event in the movie, in the rockumentary, if you will, rockumentary Spinal Tap, is that this corny, you know, Iron Maiden-esque, Judas Priest-esque sort of like pre-glam uh, you know, post Led Zeppelin metal band is releasing a new album and they have a really a picture. The the cover of the new album is supposed to be a woman on all fours being forced to smell a glove. And no, and the female record executive, right, played by Fran Drescher, which is amazing, uh, comedy legend Fran Drescher, we can say in retrospect, uh, and, and as well as all the major chains in America won't carry the album because the cover is offensive. And the Spinal Tap guys don't understand because there are other heavy metal artists uh, and rock artists who come up with albums that are equally sexual. But they have to be told, like, no, really, you have to humiliate yourself. You can't humiliate and and kind of degrade others, which is not necessarily true in terms of the commercial success of heavy metal in the 80s. There was a lot of degrading of others that takes place. But it's an interesting idea that's not necessarily intuitive. Uh, that like punching up versus punching down is important. Uh, my other part of this movie that felt very current and really my favorite part of the movie that I don't think I ever noticed before. I wouldn't necessarily say this is a movie that gives you something new every time you watch it because I watched it a bunch of times. But every once in a while you see something new. There's lots of complexity is when they're a like retro like rockabilly-ish kind of like 50s rock band or whatever it is they're doing early 60s. And they and they play the song. uh uh Stop wasting my time. You know what I want. You know what I need. Or maybe you don't. Do I have to come right flat out and tell you everything? And then the chorus, of course, in a huge left turn is, Give me some money. Give me some, Give money. some money. Which, I mean, that never struck me as, as how funny that is, right? Because, and think about the layers of that joke, right? It's like all of these 
male, these heavily male misogynistic rock bands from the mid 20th century, which are seen in context as being like utterly harmless relative to modern rock bands are still pretty slimy. And these sort of extortionist love songs about how the women, you know, like, you know, ooh, baby, that's what I like, right? Where it's like the guy is like, um, I've identified the woman who's going to perform sexual favors on me and it will happen after the show, right? And uh, and it has this real, like, just disregard. And there's this real callous kind of chauvinism is is behind all of it. Uh, and and the, the, to see the, it, like, uh, if you have to treat women like people, the whole second half of the 20th century and rock and roll just can't happen. Well, I mean, it's it's, you know, I hope so. <laughs> I hope that we can prevent the seventh, the second half of the 20th century uh, from happening. Uh, well, I guess we if we the first half was worse. But um, I mean, whatever. You don't want to prevent the bad. You don't want to prevent our own births and the bad things and the good things and all that other stuff. But at any rate, the point is that they that Sinal Tap is also a kind of historical pastiche that parodies different periods in rock music with a similar sort of notion that these people are like hopping onto somebody else's style and infusing it with their own kind of mercenary lack of artistic inspiration. But they remain high status in the sense that they are rock gods, right? When they get on stage, you know, even if it's only a bunch of 14-year-old boys that are watching them, then there's still this sense of huge esteem for them, and and they really internalize that. So I think, yeah, the stuff like the Yoko Ono jokes don't really play, but also the relationship between their existing manager and the girl, Ryan, the other managers. um, I mean, I think if you were to, it's part of what really ties the movie together. But if you were to do it again, I think you would probably downplay all that stuff and focus more on the actual rockers uh, who are less central to the moving forward of the movie than I had remembered. Uh, But anyway, what I wanted to say is that the main way to me that Spinal Tap feels dated is that really cruel, not cruel, sorry, uh, really obscene song lyrics are like utterly and completely common, right? Um, like just take, yeah, you know, and so like, it was part of the joy of watching Spinal Tap back in the day was that the really obscene song lyrics were themselves kind of like joyfully transgressive, especially for youngsters, right? Especially for young teenagers. But like, if you look at like bad guy by Billie Eilish, which was like sung on SNL, like this weekend, it's like just as nasty as the Spinal Tap songs and, you know, in, in like the sort of evocativeness of it, it's not as like, as, as rude, in the sense of like um, as sort of callous towards others, it's not as kind of it's not. But it is like relative to the stuff that would have been normal in 84 when Spinal Tap came out. It's like miles more shocking in its sexual content. Right. Um, you know, the idea that it's a 17 year old girl who's got bruises on her knees for performing oral sex on a man who is who thinks that he is dominating her, but she has this sort of private space in her mind where she knows that she's the one in charge. Like the idea that that's like the content of a song that a teenager sings on network television is just so far past where we were in 84 in terms of these things being acceptable that the sort of clench and release associated with dirty songs is not quite as like giddy, right? That sort of like rectal action of like, ooh, he said but, right? Is not quite as... uh is not quite as as uh, earth shaking as it were, uh, and so you have to kind of 
get joy out of the of the movie in different ways. I wasn't as like laugh crazy laughing through this as I was the first time I saw it because it wasn't as surprising because the things that they do at this point would be like you would see a video on YouTube that does that just as a normal thing, right? Like I'm sh- like right now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to go on YouTube right now and I'm going to look up Sex Farm and I'm going to see how many different videos I get. <laughs> oh god, like, no, uh, don't do that. Whatever you do, do not Google <laughs> Sex Farm. Whatever you <laughs> don't do that because uh, don't do that that Pete uh, no. because Pete told oh, you oh to. no because there's a specific movie uh, yeah no I mean just you know <laughs> don't Google it no no but it's like yeah there's like straight up pornography all over the place right um, and there's also a clip from Sex in the City and it's and it's all thrown in with the Spinal Tap song so the idea that like the notion of a sex farm was like unheard of in terms of being ridiculous both ridiculous and obscene it's just fundamentally different and i feel like that aspect of the movie is the most dated part um and i think that um the movie is also an exercise in improvisation and so in that respect it's pretty fun to watch the way that they build the characters and the scenes together um and i think that uh the the um the like uh, performance uh, in particular, I'm, I'm actually um, of uh, Harry Shearer's performance in particular to me stands out as one that's not dated and that you would want to emphasize more if you were to remake the movie. Right. It's like I would shift the energy away from the A&R people. But yeah, I guess. But what you're also saying, right, is this notion that guitar rock in general is a topic of importance and that whoever happens to be on top of guitar rock is a notable person is an assumption that kind of has to be there in order for this movie to really function the way that it's designed. Um, And it's not like the the, the driving egos of the guitar god or gods in this case. Right. Is it it memory failing me or is it the case that in the beginning of the movie, both Nigel Tufnell and David St. Hubbins are presented as the lead guitarists (laughs) for Spinal Tap? (laughs) Right, right, right. right. Um, Yeah, like that, that I think, is uh, is like the cultural context of a rock god being uh, important in that particular kind of way is very uh, central to, uh, to to enjoying this movie and understanding it, which is just not a thing really these days. Yeah. Like who's who's a rock god in 2019? Who's a guitar god in 2019? Saint yeah. Vincent, I think so, right? <laughs> I mean that that's, that's that's quite a lot about uh, about where Saint we Vincent's come. a pretty good guitar player for sure, but not a, gu- gu- a guitar god in the same way that Nigel Tufnell aspired to be. Let's put it that way. No, yeah, um, I mean I guess so. Yeah, that's Pete, true. I, I'm gonna. Slightly push back on, on sure. your point on the lyrics and then also bring up another thing about how this movie might may or may not be dated. Um, sort of the 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 prurient and sexual nature of the lyrics. Um, I think you were probably right in that they were over the top uh, in 1984. But also, like, think about this. This, this movie came out just a few years after the Kiss song Love Gun came out. You remember mm-hmm. this one, right? Yeah. Um, it's the Love Gun is like not even a double entendre. It's a, yeah. like a one point zero two five entendre, right? <laughs> uh, and um, but you know, and if only a few years later, uh, the Warren song Cherry Pie comes out, right? Right, which right. Uh, is also maybe like like a one point three entendre, um, and that also has a similarly highly suggestive. Uh, uh, album cover, which just leaves uh, doesn't leave a whole lot to the imagination as to what the cherry pie might be a metaphor for. Um, I guess all that is to say that you know, dirty lyrics have been out there for um, yeah. for a long time, and Spinal Taps 
uh, lyrics are only a slight exaggeration of what was the norm at the time for for this type of rock music. Um, it does feel more accessible to young people, though, because I, I feel like I never really thought of Cherry Pie at the time as being obscene. Right? Interesting. But as, which it, maybe I'm just floating out a weird idea here, which is that part of what Spinal Tap does then is it's revealing the absurd, like existing absurdities, and and yeah, maybe it's not exaggerating not exaggerating them as much as we might think that it is, because it, the the real life is kind of closer to it than we would have thought. But it is putting them forward in a way that's kind of easily digestible to people who aren't entirely familiar with what's going on. Mm. Uh, right. Like, uh, I mean, certainly if you went to actual Judas priest concerts, you probably encountered like people having sex and doing drugs and stuff, you know, pretty, you know, openly in, in the parking situations. lot. Yeah. Bathroom. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but it's not the same if you're like, you know, watching this movie with, with uh, Christopher Guest in it. It's like a different context. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you. You were about yeah. to jump into the, it. Brother. The other thing, and, and tell me if you guys feel about this way, is the incompetence of stagecraft uh, that we see. Um, the, the, I mean, oh, obviously, yeah. you know, it's a movie and it's exaggerated and it's supposed to show sort of like the worst case scenarios, um, uh, many of which, by the way, are either uh, were drawn from real life or like coincidentally uh, align pretty well with actual rock bands experience from the time. But it makes me think of, Matt, something that you've talked about for in movie making uh, recently, which is that just given the advances of the craft and in technology, like technical mistakes for major Hollywood movies that used to be not common, but certainly present, you know, like 20, 30 years ago are virtually non-existent now, right? Things like lighting, I don't know, like the boom bike in the shot and uh, other things like that, um, just because like the, the field has advanced. Um, I, I want to, my, my gut tells me that likewise, in terms of like, um, the logistics of putting on a tour, even a modest one of, of this sort, and also just like getting the wireless things on a, on, on, a, on an electric guitar, like those types of mistakes happen less frequently. And it's it, it, along the lines of like, I, I don't know, like cars are more reliable these days. Is there anything to that, Matt? Yeah, the, I, I mean, I think so. It definitely uh, it, it definitely is the case that like, you know, the the wireless stuff is is a lot better. Um, I don't know. I just like, yeah. Uh, and, and also, well, I don't know, like the, the, it just seems a little, it just seems a little dumb, right? Like the, these, the, some of the stuff, if you have really played together for that long, like the, some of the stuff that phases these guys just doesn't phase you. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like some of the stuff that like, um, that happens to them even if it happens like they would uh have some scar tissue to like deal with it a lot more elegantly and a lot more you know i don't know yeah it's my i mean it's my least favorite it's my least favorite part of of the movie and it's my least favorite kind of comedy i guess of like hey aren't these guys dumb like laugh at the dumb people (laughs) laugh my smart friends oh can you imagine can pete can you imagine being as dumb as them (laughs) oh so dumb um, I think, <laughs> and, and by the way, like it's worth saying that these that this is the crew, this is the trio, like largely Christopher Guest, I think, as kind of a prime mover, though it doesn't seem as much so in this movie, maybe because they have Rob Reiner, but um, like this is the crew that did uh, 
Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show and A Mighty Wind and like that, you know, these are the the kind of contemporary mockumentaries with, you know, and a lot of people in those are are in this one, like Fred Willard uh, plays part uh, in this one. And and then like there are more, you know, more people in the in the contemporary ones, the post the post Guffman ones. And I guess like the. the thing about Guffman that I love so much, uh, like, A, I, I have been that, like, I, so it's a movie about me and people I know. Um, but, but more than that, it's like, it, it's people trying as hard as they can to do a thing well, you know? And, and the fact that they're, the fact that it's awful, it, it doesn't, you know, sort of doesn't obtain their, their effort is kind of dignified somehow by, by how badly they want it by like, by how big their need is. And that like, that's not quite, and you, you identify with them for that, for that reason, by the kind of, for their sort of vulnerability. And that just doesn't, the, the filmmaking was not as developed. The artistic sensibility was not quite as developed i think at at this time uh and in this this movie which though great doesn't i don't know doesn't tug at the heartstrings the way some of the later mockumentary stuff does yeah i think one of the issues with this movie ultimately is that a lot of the silliness that's attributable to rock and roll stars which you don't really become aware of until you're a little older is because they're like 20 (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and like they get put on yeah. the road from a young age and maybe not exactly 20, but, you know, like in their early 20s, you know, uh, and all of a sudden they have millions of dollars and no supervision. So, of course, they act crazy. Uh, and, and so when you have older people who are then acting crazy, it, it takes on this sort of sinister feel to it because they also there's this sense. I think I think that. uh uh, Lauren Michaels has actually said that this is why he doesn't cast older people on Saturday Night Live a lot, because the audience is more forgiving of accidents and mistakes from young people as they kind of get accustomed to things. They kind of get to be on their side. Uh, and with older people, mistakes feel not as good, especially if they're things that this person is really supposed to be responsible for. And so in that sense, it's like, well, who exactly is Spinal Tap making fun of? Yeah. Uh, right. It's not like an almost famous parody where they're making fun of like, I'm a golden god. That's like the the pop star model with Andy Samberg, which we've written about and overthinking it, too, um, where it's like, you know, I'm a young person who doesn't really understand what the world is about. The Spinal Tap is never concerned even a little bit about the world in the course of this movie. Right. But and they're pushing 40. So I almost kind of wonder whether to read this movie, it's less to consider them as human beings and more to think of them as sort of uh, kind of carriers of the spirit of rock as sort of like, I guess what is the sort of like a dumb think of sort of a God that's blind and dumb and like stumbles forward, almost like a Lovecraftian old one. Right. And like, uh, and, and like carries forth this thing that's like rock and roll and never really appreciate, understands the world around it, but just kind of keeps doing what it's doing. Um, and that the fact that Spinal Tap has existed in kind of every, in every milieu, in every rock era, uh, is, is kind of part of, it's part of it. Um, yeah. my so. slightly different take on that is that, um, you can think of this movie as a workplace comedy, 
Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's, it's almost like alluded to directly in the movie um, when they talk about when David St. Hubbins is talking about Nigel Tufnell leaving the band. He says, well, there have been 37 people who have been in this band over the years. Yeah. It's about Slandle Tap is, is institutionalized in a certain way um, that like, I don't know, like a like a, um, a family owned and operated company would be right. You know, the sort of the two founders who have who've known each other for a very long time since childhood and have changed with the times and have brought on a lot of different people over the years um, and also have a quote unquote professional manager um, that ostensibly over oversees this. And so it takes on this idea of like, well, this is a kind of a rotten institution <laughs> that leads to bad decision makings, like um, an album getting released without the band signing off or a 18 inch prop <laughs> that is put into production, you know, in, in a live show. Um, after having been commissioned specifically by the band uh, without anybody checking it out. Right. And, you know, without the sort of checks and balances needed to approve something like that. That is that's not something that I thought about before this time watching it. Uh, it also made me think about um, uh, Matt, uh, the conversations you and Ryan had on the TFT podcast about a band being sort of a, a workplace organizational unit or like a certain corporatism of, of the rock band itself. Yeah, I listened to I listened to a podcast called I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, which is for people who only listen to the Mountain Goats. Um no, it's a it's a sort of track by track style podcast with John Darneal, who is the the singer songwriter of the band The Mountain Goats, which is sometimes just him and sometimes includes other people. Actually, uh, more recently it's included other people to great effect. I saw them a couple of weeks ago in the fantastic rock and roll show. Anyway, but he's a, you know, he's a father and he's a, you know, sort of middle-aged guy now and and a guy with the, with a past and a lot of stuff and like wants a quiet life and wherever he lives I think on the east coast somewhere like North Carolina something like that like he he uh and he talks on the show about touring and is like you know make no mistake I'm very grateful for the the life that I have but like it's it's hard it's grueling on the body um to you know drive to a different town every night set up play a show that night and then get back on the bus and and drive again and like i'm not 20 anymore and i can't you know, do the things that i used to do and my body doesn't respond in in the way that it responds and it's so i mean it, you know it's so fascinating because sort of it, it's a good balance in in his case between the sort of the real you know the the uh <laughs> the realness of like uh the the physical hardships of it and the you know the sense that like it is still the greatest job in the world and like no one you know uh no one can really legitimately complain about it um because truly no one put a gun to your head and and, and forced you to do it um i don't know sorry it's uh, off on a uh off on a tangent like r- rock bands yeah the the interesting thing i think that one of the interesting insights that came out of the TFT podcast came out of the the whole multi year longitudinal research project uh, of the TFT podcast, which was a, a you know multi disciplinary investigation into the question: Is this S for real? Um, the, it was that anarchy doesn't scale, you know, and and it only works. If there is a kind of a, a structure that undergirds it and kind of boundaries that support it. So like punk works within constrained 
parameters within a boundary, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't work as a social organization. Uh, it works as a kind of anti-social organization within a social organization, but that like, there is like to, to enable the kind of, uh, bad behavior and to enable the kind of like, uh, sociopathic, um, tendencies and, you know, behavior that, that, are involved the kind of anti like like literally anti-social um stuff uh you actually need a lot of society uh, this is a point that pete has made uh at various times with regard to to uh dystopian hellscape worlds um like the one in the dark knight uh which is that like hey you may have your your dystopian kangaroo court with a, a judge sitting high atop a, a like a wrecked pile of desks high in the air but like someone had to make a wrecked pile of desks in order for that to be the case and that took collective action and and organization you know um the other right the other uh the point that we made um was that very often like things you know lone geniuses are sort of technologically enabled and so people who like reject the uh you know people reject who reject the mainstream culture and like make music on their lap their laptops are actually not uh, uh making Making music on uh, are not rejecting mainstream culture because they're using a MacBook, uh, and that connects them to a whole chain of commercial practices, many of which are exploitative, and many of which involve you know large scale suffering uh, in like international manufacture practices. My phrase for this was your Faraday cage of non interference is built upon a pyramid of human skulls. But I digress. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> right? Like, uh, oh, Matt, skulls are so metal. <laughs> skulls are yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Skulls are, skulls are metal. And the, the, you know, I don't know, the, the suffering of, of uh, children who have to work in the heavy metal mines, uh, <laughs> that, that's metal AF, as the kids say these days. I feel like I took us off on a, on a tangent. But yeah, Mark, like uh, rock bands are a workplace, you know, and um, they have workplace, uh, they have workplace issues in addition to, uh, in addition to issues of extreme metalitude. Yeah, I mean, you know, to to go back to the the Yoko Ono slash girlfriend sort of thing, right? That's a HR Ugh, breakdown there, she's right? The worst. I mean, Girls are the worst, am I right? right? I mean, she wasn't hired in a transparent process. She kind of just showed up and became an important stakeholder. And I actually think, I think, that that's, I think that that's Nigel's primary objection to her is that like there was a lot of bias in the selection process for hiring her, in that she was uh, David St. Hubbins' girlfriend. Yeah, and that he had know, he, he had no HR department to file a grievance with. Um, I mean, it could go on, right? Yeah, that kind of really is just you know the org chart wasn't really set up right for Spinal Tap to succeed. Look, first you gotta write a job description. Okay, step zero is you write a job description. <laughs> you know, um, girlfriend to break up my band, right? And then you gotta open a wreck. It's gotta all go through legal. You know. Anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> So Save one thing that I think it's one thing I, one thing that I think Spinal Tap is missing, which it couldn't do, uh, but I wish that it could have done, uh, is that Spinal Tap is a, is probably the most famous movie that addresses how loud 
some music is when you go to see it, <laughs> right? Because it has the whole thing about we're the you know Britain's loudest band is what they're referred to in a backhanded compliment. Uh, and of course, this this is the um, this is something I feel like I've said in the podcast a lot too, but I certainly say it in real life uh, a lot as well. Which is like if you see a Taco Bell commercial and it says, you know, remember that that uh, campaign where it's like if you come here, you leave full. Right. And it's like, well, what freaking restaurant do you go to that doesn't have food? Right. Like it turns out if you exchange sufficient amount of currency, you could buy two of the thing you're eating. Right. Like, like, like if you really, really want it, you could buy more peanut butter than a human being could concern could consume in one sitting. Right? Like it's possible to build an amplifier that like liquefies a human skull. Uh, and so which, of course. Would be very metal, but uh, <laughs> but but I think part of the that I don't I never really understood uh, until I mean I still don't fully understand what it, why concerts are so loud sometimes and why rock concerts are so loud it, like loud to the point of really hurting you right loud to the point where it is like a common thing to buy earplugs so you can't hear the music that you're going to go listen to right like this is just something that people accept it just happens that the music is that loud that you have to buy earplugs as a safety measure to protect yourself from it and so what i really wish about the spinal tap movie is i wish that all the songs were really really uncomfortably loud like i wish that if you're watching the movie and they just start singing big bottom it like blasts right um, because I think that would also give you a sense for what sort of transformative thing is happening when Spinal Tap goes on stage. And it does two things, right? It connects with this idea of bigness, uh, you know, size and whatnot, and metaphorical and and real ideas of size, which I'll get into in just a second. But then, and then it also um, it also addresses this notion of like, you know, what's the sort of special occasion, right? What's what's the thing that's happening that's so special? Uh, that when Spinal Tap goes on stage, that kind of transforms everybody and thrills everybody. Uh, and um, and what and I think it would also set their kind of um, quiet conversations in the background into sharper relief, because I think that they're making this movie with the idea that this band is playing super duper loud concerts. But the actual music is 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 ironically enough mixed fine in, in doubly. Uh, right? like, <laughs> um but to say about the size, right? I feel like Stone, the Stonehenge scene, relates to the amps go to eleven scene around this whole idea, right? Because we're be- we're being given a sort of thesis and antithesis. The first thesis is that any rock band is as loud as the as as its amplification, and no rock band that has the same amplification as another rock band, right, is going to be louder. And so the idea that a band performs with the idea of like, you got to turn our music down, right, is 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 absurd, <laughs> right? That, that uh, the, the idea that when Twisted Sister is like, when you listen to our music, you need to play it loud. And like, you couldn't do that for Peebo Bryson. Like, you could also crank Peebo Bryson. You won't. But like, you could. Uh, it's the same stereo. Um, and so it's like, why why not just go to 10 and make 10 louder? And this is the idea, well, we should go to 11 because 11 is louder. So there's this sort of notional loudness. There's this idea that the band is performing a loudness that is distinct from how loud the band actually is. And and so that's sort of the thesis that the movie is putting across, that Spinal Tap is a loud band, not just because its amplifiers are loud, but because it has the kind of performative 
transformative, you know, artistic dimensions of a loud game. Informative, deformative, conformative. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, so part of that, and before you go into the rest oh, of your yeah, point, yeah. is that, you know, the, the Nigel's solo where he takes the violin and scrapes it across the guitar strings. <laughs> it's, that, is, that is also performative loudness. Yeah. Or when he holds up the Les Paul that isn't making any noise and is like, listen to the sustain. Oh. Right. And he shakes it. Right. And it's like it's like the idea of the guitar's sustain is sort of decoupled from the guitar actually being a musical instrument. It becomes this sort of symbol. Right. Uh, of the of the thing that a guitar might be able to do. Um, the counterpoint to this, the antithesis of this is Stonehenge, which is that they make as it turns out that if you have a uh, what a foam model of Stonehenge, Stonehenge is big. Right. And so the model to be on stage that's imitating Stonehenge is kind of communicating an idea of, of size and of largeness. Well, it turns out if the thing isn't actually big, right, it becomes absurd, uh, which which I think goes against the idea of sort of performative. It intersects with goes against with and kind of foils this idea that Spinal Tap is like a performatively loud band. Uh, and because and, and their material circumstances are kind of dictating that their that their materials are physically smaller. Like it's like it's this sort of Freudian anxiety of castration where like there's they, they look down at their Stonehenge and it's gone. Right. It's tiny. Um, and and so I'm, I'm trying to suss out, like, what's the what's the sort of uh, synthesis of these two ideas of the idea that, like, well, you know, whether something is actually big or small, loud or soft matters less than the notion of whether it's big or small, loud or soft. And we certainly know from watching movies that models of things are frequently interposed for large versions of those things. Right. It's like, a, you know, the actual Star Trek you know, Starship Enterprise is not that big. You can see the string sometimes, that kind of thing. But it's communicating something that's much larger. Or the idea that if you actually can't make things that are actually like big enough, loud enough, popular enough, kind of materially impressive enough to justify your artistic claim to being large, that makes you the fool. And you're and you're deluding yourself that you're not as big as you say you are. Uh, um, so I'm 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 like struggling and wrestling with this well, idea. The, like, what's, what's the synthesis the, of spinal? The synthesis is that they're big in Japan. <laughs> that's yeah. brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Unpack that a little bit. Well, that's uh, the the end of the movie. Like the the you know the band breaks up because it gets Yoko Onoed, and it also they're not popular in the United States. But then at the last show in Los Angeles, um, Nigel comes back and tells them that you know uh, whatever one of the songs Big Bottom maybe is like number five in Japan uh, on the Japanese charts, and so they they want. I believe it's Sex Farm. Oh, I think Sex, Sex Farm. Farm. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> important detail. Uh, yeah. important detail. I just like um I just want everyone to appreciate my restraint at this moment. The uh <laughs> the uh the whole finale, right? The whole like happy ending of the movie is that they go they go to Japan and that they, you know, um that yeah, that they can have a successful rock and roll tour uh, ab- with um, you know with the Japanese audience, like and and so like it's it's like you're big you're big in a smaller market or you're a bigger fish in a in a smaller pond, right? Like you can be you can be that big. Like there's a there's a notional bigness, there's an a priori uh, bigness, right? A bigness of of kind of definitions and like of abstract as abstract systems and and. Intrig- 
intrinsic bigness, and then there's like a business, uh, a bigness in in fact, a um, uh, oh, uh, what would Aristotle call it? The efficient bigness, right? Um, the efficient cause of the of the bigness, and that like you go, you can kind of go to a you can go to a smaller market, right? Like because the world is a large place, and there are. Uh, a lot of opportunities to kind of actualize your ideas that like maybe the United States isn't, uh, isn't the place for it. Now there's a lot of, there's a lot, uh, here that has to do with, uh, anxieties about Japan in the eighties, like Japan being a, a big economy that's going to come eat our lunch. They're Sony, you know, they Sony's going to buy our movie studios and they're going to like take over our car manu- manufacturer. And, and also by the way, they're really short, right? There's like a lot, you know, you're, you're big in Japan because the Japanese are short, right? Is the racist, uh, you know, idea of the, uh, of that joke, you know, that, that, um, uh, there's a lot there's a lot of reasons why it was uh japan specifically but for the point of the the sort of scholastic model the the hegelian uh dialectical model that that pete is is proposing like it actually could be any other venue it could be any other country on earth you know that that you could be big you know in i don't know estonia or poland eastern europe or something like that right like uh and and you could go tour you could go you could go tour there you find you find a way you find a venue where you can achieve a performative bigness that matches your your notional uh your notional bigness for example or or you know if you can't um I don't know if you can't make it as a stand up comic or a improv troupe or something like that you know what you do you do a podcast, uh, Matt. Matt, the why dagger. don't you why don't you make ten be a little softer and then have amp go up to eleven <laughs> and make eleven be the highest number? Oh, this is one. This is one louder. <laughs> Speaking of the uh, the international nature of of this movie and of Spinal Tap, the operation, um, can we talk about the significance that they are British or English? You know, from the United Kingdom. Oh yeah, that they're none of them are actually British, right? Like the well, they, well, a there's that, yeah. But like they present oddly enough as like as as foreign on American soil, um, and yet they are familiar in many ways. Yeah, but they did. I mean, I I think it was so that they could do like the Beatles a little bit, like right, like that's that's the the thing because it's it's John and Paul, you know, of the like the two. Um, songwriters and kind of animating forces behind the band. And then, like, the give me some money thing is like, uh, you know, the kind of mop top Beatles. And then the, the psychedelic stuff is like Sgt. Peppers and stuff. And then, then, like, um, you know, so, so that they can kind of, I, I feel like they're just, uh, they want that legacy. You know what I mean? They want to, like, hop on right. that. They want to hop on that mm. train. Um, yeah. I don't know if British heavy metal really was a huge thing in the United States. We had plenty of homegrown heavy metal, right? It was Iron Maiden eh. um, and Judas Led Zeppelin. Priest. Yeah, or is, is Led Zeppelin's British, right? Or are they are they American? Yeah, yeah. Led Zeppelin's yeah. British. Judas yeah. Priest is British, also. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. Uh, but I feel like I feel like the the English the Britishness of them is there for the joke of what their names are. 
right? Which is that they're David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell, and they play the music of Satan, right? And they have these kind of like posh, uh, they're not posh, but these sort of very uh, quaint, uh, very, very sort of soft English, Englishy English names. Um, and that suggest Hubbins and Tufnell suggest like rabbits or, or other sorts of things, which which further reinforces the notion that their heavy metal is 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 a veneer over a, a relatively kind of uh, complacent uh, personality, right? It's that they don't really want things that badly. They they don't really feel these aggressive feelings in their lives that they're putting out on stage. They're putting whatever things on stage they need to put out in order to kind of like be awesome and feel awesome. But they're not, there's this barrier between their personal life and their, uh, their musical life. And in their personal life, they like wear the little sweatshirt and they drink their tea. And it's like, well, I want to go back with the guys and play the game. (laughs) The drummer is interviewed in a bath. Right, right, right. Yeah. These are, these are people who like being comfortable, who sing about damnation. Right. <laughs> Not that you're bringing this up, it really like makes that very, very last scene in the movie take on more significance, right? The one that's playing in the end credits, where he's, the director is asking the other members of the band what other thing they would like to do, and yeah. and then, then Nigel goes on and on about being the in the hat shop, and he's like, "Would you be happy doing that?" And his response is, "Well, I don't know. What are the hours?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh man, it's so good. Well, we're doing that thing we say we wouldn't do, which is just like recount the bits of the movie. Uh, um, but it, it, let's, sing, let's sing the songs next. <laughs> mm, working on a sex farm. Um, but now, before we get to, to totally descend in, into that, um, yeah, just to, to pack you up, you said Pete. Like, uh, but also to emphasize, like, I don't know if poshness is quite the thing, but no. it's like the I don't know sophistication that one that an American expects from someone speaking with that type of British accent. Um, contrasted with how stupid <laughs> these men are, I think that I think a lot that that were emasculine, right? They're they're kind of like non-aggressive, passive, right? Yeah. Not aggressive. Yeah. Which is yeah. funny. Yeah. Which is funny because they talk about the armadillos in their pants, and you yeah. know, <laughs> Harry Shearer walks around with a cucumber wrapped up in foil down his pants leg, and like the whole. His name is Derek Smalls, by the way. Yeah. Further undermining the notion of the ocean that is going on in the motion and whatnot. <laughs> um. The uh, well, you know, uh, I got this notion that the motion of his ocean needs small craft advisories. (laughs) It's dick stuff. Um, But yeah, I mean, there is, I guess, the the kind of the underlying vulnerability. And this is a thing with with Christopher Guest is that they actually are like uh they actually are sort of adolescent boys. And there's there's like. you know, there's a sense. There's a the scene in which uh, Derek Smalls is interviewed about like, are you a are you an adolescent? Are you in a state of arrested development? You know, and his answer is like, well, it's like it's it's sort of like a naturalist thing. It's like uh, uh, animals at the Natural History Museum. We're sort of we're sort of preserved, and that is that is interesting because that is kind of what the film does. You know, and I mean it like it like it shows you specimens you know and uh there allows you to kind of examine um the the specimens from from sort of safe uh safe behind the class um and that's uh it is sort of an interesting thing and you sort of wonder about the kind of the anthropological 
uses of of you know maintaining the the fourteen year old boys who are who have just such such anxiety about whether their Stonehenge is big enough and like uh, are are prone to such petty humiliations um, and you know and stuff uh, what what the what the film is missing actually in terms of like gritty realism of, of rock and roll is, uh, uh, drugs and booze, you know, like sex is hinted at, I guess drugs is hinted at a a little bit, but like, and under such heavy sedation, but like, I don't know, they'd be in, in, in a real situation, they'd be getting a lot higher, a lot more often, uh, you know, I think in order to like keep their edge. Yeah. It's interesting to contrast this with Flight of the Concords, which is kind of the modern spinal tap, right? Where it's like a it's a guitar band and they're they have bad incompetent manager who can't really get them gigs and they're struggling. But all of those things that we're identifying as kind of weird shortcomings of spinal tap make sense in the Flight of the Concord concept because they're not really rock stars. They're not really party hardy. They're certainly not like you know, twenty year veterans of touring with rock bands. Um, and the idea that it's like, oh, I'm going to go work in a shop is is uh, more fitting of the uh, the kind of scale that everything is happening. And the bridge from being from New Zealand and coming to the United States and it all kind of makes sense. I'm just I'm just sort of suggesting that uh, if what you wanted was a Spinal Tap remake with a whole bunch of the things about it kind of adjusted for the modern day and you're willing to define the modern day as 10 years ago, Flight of the Concords did a pretty good job of doing that sort of thing. Um, what's Have you guys seen any other rockumentaries lately that you really liked? Uh, like pop star or CB4 back in the day or anything like that. I mean, Do they I make? Thought, I thought Fear of a Black Hat was very good when I saw that, which was sort of the hip hop one. Ah, uh, gotcha. That was um, you know sort of eighties again, eighties and kind of early nineties type of stuff. It was uh, pretty funny. I thought. Nice. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned pop star before, but I I did see it uh, what, about three years ago, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's very silly, but if you like Spinal Tap, then you will certainly enjoy Pop Star as well. Man. Well, you know what else goes up to 11, guys? It's the Overthinking It podcast. Yeah. That's right. Let's, uh, let's, let's navel gaze. Um, to what? I, I have an answer to this question, so I'll go first so as not to put you guys on the spot. But to what do you owe the longevity, the successful longevity of the Overthinking It podcast? That, that we've actually managed to do this thing that we set out to do and put out a weekly episode, um, you know, for, for the last 11 years. Uh, my, um, my vote is that we, we found a time that worked early on and we've stuck mm-hmm. to it. <laughs> like we, re- <laughs> we record the podcast at the same time now as we did in 2008 or 2009, you know, uh, that it, it, like we record on Sundays at 9 15 PM Eastern. That's and that has been the case since the very beginning. And sometimes we travel, sometimes we change it, sometimes you know uh, there are sort of exigencies. But like we do, th- this is what it is. And like that, that we sort of build. <laughs> if you're like me, my whole weekend is built around that. It has to you know wrap up by this particular time so that uh, I can be here and do do the show with you guys. And like if we had to. And the point, the like the the good project management um, 
point uh, from this is like you have to take as much as you can out of the realm of uh, what you have to negotiate week to week, right? Because dealing with people ex- is exhausting and like you want to make that you want to make that part of it uh, as easy as possible. Remove as much from the realm of choice uh, or contingency as as possible. Like we can focus on other things if we know what the time is every week. And had we had to negotiate a different time every single week, there's no way we would have made it uh, we would have made it nearly this far. For sure, for sure. Do, do you have one, Pete, an, an idea? I'll why? just add that if I didn't like talking to you guys and if you guys well, didn't like talking oh God, to me, I, was, I have no idea. I hope you guys like talking to I was me. Gonna, I was going to get sentimental more towards the end, but thank you very much. <laughs> but, but that this has been fun to do, and, and I think that there's also the social reinforcement. I think I would also say that our Slack channel has been pretty key. Um, that that uh, in terms of being able to stay in touch with the larger overthinking it crew, those of you whose only real interaction with us is the podcast, you probably wonder what happens to the people who have been part of overthinking it from time to time and maybe show up for an episode here or there. A lot of them, or at least a bunch of them, are still on our own back back channel, and we still talk to them fairly regularly. And we hope that we, you know, periodically we'll get to kind of bring them out and they'll rejoin us when they can and do a podcast. So there is something of a kind of larger community. Uh, I mean, we haven't like set up a discord or anything. Um, and of course, the you know the community on the side of the people leave comments. Hey, remember when we started reading uh, listener comments online? It was on the show and it was really great. We should yeah, do that, that again. Was, that was too. that was fun. Uh, we haven't yeah. done that since the episode where we read a lot of the comments. So we <laughs> That's right. Should. Well, because yeah, we had a weird spot where we were like we had to film two episodes back to back and it wasn't sure what we were doing. And then we got a ton of comments on some of the things and we weren't addressing them fast enough. And but we can do that again sometime. But I would just say that, yeah, if if I didn't like talking to you guys and you guys didn't like talking to me then we probably would have packed this in a long time ago um so that's that's what i would attribute to although i also agree that the time slot being sacrosanct has been essential to all of this yeah i co-sign everything that's been said before and i'll just add to that um my deep and abiding love of movies and talking to them but really um hollywood for keeping to make continuing to make movies in particular continuing to insist that somehow making terminator movies is a good idea (laughs) terminator terminator dark fate in theaters november 1st 2019 i look forward to talking to the two of you about it on november 3rd 2019 and then releasing that podcast on november 4th (laughs) No paper will be no no podcast will we make for ourselves, you guys. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it. it I guess I, I kind of want to end the eleventh year. <laughs> Jesus, right? Um, of this on a note of of gratitude, I cannot believe. Um, some people say I'm humbled. Um, which is wrong. They're, they're wrong to say that because they're talking about being exalted, but they say that they're, they're humbled. Maybe that the, the scope of their accomp- accomplishment reminds them to uh, practice humility or something like that. But no, I, I, I cannot believe I'm daunted by the scale um, of the idea that there's, you know, some, some number of people out there in the world who want to listen to us uh, talk about, you know, whatever is most interesting to us week after week. I, I, I'm so proud of that. And I'm so grateful, uh, for your time and attention. Um, every single person who's listened to even one minute of the overthinking a podcast, I, I, you know, the, the one, you know, non-renewable resource, your time, um, being given to us is, uh, an enormous thing. And I'm, I'm really, 
grateful for it. And I, I also am so, so profoundly grateful for the opportunity to talk to you two guys and, and everyone, I, each of our overthinking it friends who comes on, on the show, but you guys have really been the stalwarts, Pete and Mark. And, uh, I just, it's, it's difficult to express in words how, how much I enjoy, um, what we do, how I look forward to it, how I, you know, think about like what fun it's going to be to hear what you guys think about things. And, and, um, you know what a what a great thing it's been in my life to have uh, uh, smart, funny friends like you guys, and uh, and good friends, profoundly good friends like uh, like y'all as well. And I uh, I just I, I appreciate that. I feel so much gratitude for uh, the thing that we get to do every week, and and that we still get to do it. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Matt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Well, for sure. Well, and thank you, Matt, because if you weren't putting this together. I mean, you do a lot more work on this podcast every week than I do. So. Oh, I get, I got, <laughs> I get it down. Much. Hey, look, it's it's seven forty five. Uh, it's seven forty five Pacific right now. I'm, my my ass is going to be on a bar stool at eight fifteen. I got it down to a science. <laughs> <laughs> so let's no, uh, Matt. No, no. The answer was Matt. After this, you're going to locate mandolin strings in Austin. You're going to find lost luggage. You're going to get two hours of sleep every night. <laughs> <laughs> I get I get two hours of sleep every night, but it's because I'm an old man who has to pee a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> that's another thing that's changed in the last eleven years. Um, God willing, we'll be back next week and for another uh, another eleven years. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve deserve. deserve. These go up to 11. <laughs>